Father, thank you so much that you are a God who is in control. And regardless of what's going on in our world today, you are right there on top of it. And nothing surprises you. And so, Lord, we commit to you our plans, but we know that you're the one who guides and you're the one who directs. And so we look to you for wisdom as we navigate these coming weeks and months, um, as we see what happens with this virus. Lord, I thank you that um, we can come together and study your word together, and I thank you for these last nine weeks. I pray that you have worked in our hearts, our lives, that you've deepened our relationship with you. And I pray that, Father, as we have this long break, that that would not be a time that we stop getting into your word or spending time with you, but that we would dig in even deeper. Father, guide us now in this time together as we look at your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember, how many of y'all are familiar with that song? It's really old. Um, I can only imagine. How many of y'all? Well, I remember the first time that I heard it, I was in my church in Dallas, which tells you it was more than 15 years ago. But I remember sitting in church listening to this girl sing this song, and it made me think about how am I going to respond the first time that I see Jesus face to face. So I, just listen to some of the words of that song. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. And I love that song. I love those words because I, and I continue to think about, will I be on my knees or my face? Or will I be standing? I don't know. But that's something for us to think about. You know, just how will we respond when we finally see him? face-to-face. Well, I remember in the final month of my mom's life at the Memphis Jewish home, she started doing something that even the nurses started taking note of. She would be sitting in her wheelchair, and it might be in her room, or they would be wheeling her down the hall, and all of a sudden, mom would just stop, and she would lift her hands to the ceiling with a smile on her face. And the nurses would ask me, you know, what do you think she's doing? And I said, well, I don't really know, but I would like to think that she is getting a glimpse of her new home or the Savior, and she's just like, I'm ready, come take me. But I watched her do that. I'd watch her sometimes sitting in a room, and we'd be, you know, I'd be talking to her, or we'd just be sitting, and she'd just be like, you know, I don't know, but I, I would love to think that she was getting a glimpse of her Savior's face. And I can't wait to ask her one day, what were you seeing? Well, this semester, we've been getting a glimpse of Jesus as we've studied the I Am statements in John. Just for a quick review, 
Uh, those I am statements, uh, the official I am statements in John are, I am the bread of life, I'm the door of the sheep, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the light of the world, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the vine, the true vine. And all these I am statements express his love, his care, his protection for us. They reveal that Jesus is God himself. So as we conclude our study of the I am's, I want to challenge us to just one word as we leave here today. And that one word is worship. Uh, In your study this week, that was an emphasis that Becky had uh, on those, especially the last few days, is on that, that whole idea of worship. And she gave some suggestions that were very helpful of how, of how can we deepen our worship. And that is um, what we're going to talk about today. But one question I really want you to ponder as we leave today is how would you describe your worship today? Not just Tuesday but where you're at right now, how would you describe your worship? Are you just going through the motions? Just kind of reading words, but kind of your mind's somewhere else, but you're saying the words. Or you're singing songs, but you're really not paying attention to what you're singing. Or are you worshiping from the heart? Are you letting the word of God and the words that you're singing impact you? And would you say that your worship is kind of, it's okay, or is it rich and vibrant? And I will confess that there are times that I will read words or sing a song, and I'm not paying any attention to what's coming out of my mouth. But I want that to change. And so let's worship him uh, with true and sincere worship. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles today to Revelation 1, 12 to 18. This was a passage that Becky had us look at uh, during our, our lessons this week. And in these verses in Revelation 1, we get a glimpse of the glorified Jesus as John shares what he saw in his vision on Patmos. And as we look at these passages together, I want to focus on two things concerning worship. I want us to look at the character of the one we worship and the response to the one we worship. So those are the two things we're going to look at, the character of the one we worship and the response to the one we worship. So we're going to begin with the the character of the one we worship. Let me just uh, begin by giving the setting, setting the stage for what was happening. Um, John was on the island of Patmos. It was near the end of his life. Some say he may have been in his 90s at this point. And he was on this island because of his faith. And he heard a loud voice, like a trumpet, behind him, telling him, giving him instructions to write these letters to these churches. And he turned around to see who was speaking to him. And then he gives us a description of what he saw. And most scholars, will they agree that we should not take this description literally, but symbolically. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the symbolism of each of these things in this 
passage today, so we're not literally uh, interpreting it. We're looking at it symbolically. So as I studied this passage this week, I saw nine attributes or characteristics of God's character. And before you think, are we going to be here till noon? No. We're going to go through these very quickly. But nine attributes or characteristics of God's character. And so let's, let's look at these uh, characteristics of the one that we worship. First, his omnipresence. We see this in verses 12 to 13. And you can read along with me if you want to. But in verse 12, he said, I saw seven golden lampstands. And I'm going to stop there because those seven lampstands represent the seven churches. We see that in, in verse 20 of chapter 1. These seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the number seven denotes completeness. And so these seven lampstands are representative of the church as a whole. So he's referring to the, to the body of Christ, to the church universal here. Verse 13, he continues, And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. And according to the Gospels, this is the title that Jesus used for himself more than any other name during his earthly ministry, the Son of Man. And when John saw him there, he looked like a man. And John knew that this was the glorified Christ. But what stands out from these verses is that he was in the middle of the lampstands. This is a picture of Jesus walking in the midst of his church. He had not withdrawn to heavenly places and forgotten about us here. He's not up in heaven just enjoying himself. He is right here with us, walking amidst us, and in heaven, and he's with every church. He is omnipresent. He is with his church. He is in heaven. He is omnipresent. That's the first characteristic that stood out to me. The second characteristic or attribute is his high priesthood. In verse 13, it says that he was clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And most occurrences of the word robe in the Greek Old Testament refer to the garment of the high priest. And so that is the picture that we're getting here is is that of the high priest. And then when it talks about the golden sash across his chest, that completes the picture of the high priest because they wore their sashes across the chest, not across the waist. That is the picture of Christ serving as our high priest. He is interceding for us before the Father as our high priest. The third characteristic or attribute is his deity. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And this is similar to the description of God, the Father, as the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 9. And the white that is referred to here, the white here is not referring to just a, a white, flat color of white. It is referring to a blazing glowing white. It is a reflection of his holiness. Jesus is a God. 
That he, this is his deity with his head and his hair white like white wool. The fourth characteristic is his omniscience. Verse 14, it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. The eyes of the Lord, the exalted Lord, penetrate the depths of his church. Nothing escapes his sight. He sees everything. He knows everything that is going on. And so he can care for us. He can, he can protect us. But also he is able to judge righteously because he knows everything and he sees everything. And so he can judge rightly, which leads us to the fifth attribute, his judgment. <clears throat> he judges sin. Verse 15 says his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been, has been made to glow in a furnace. The altar of burnt offering in the Old Testament was made of bronze, and the utensils that were used were made of bronze. And so the sacrifices made on the bronze altar in the Old Testament, uh, those were an, an offering to cover sins, to cover their judgment. And glowing hot bronze feet are a reference to God's judgment. Jesus Christ had come to judge the churches, and he would judge the world. This description of the bronze feet, it just it points to Christ's holiness and that he won't tolerate sin. He will judge sin. The sixth attribute that I saw in this passage was his power and authority. Okay, I know those are really two attributes, but they go together here, his power and authority. Verse 15, it says that his voice was like the sound of many waters. And that gives us a picture of a a huge waterfall pouring over a high cliff. And I don't know if how many of you have been to Niagara Falls. I haven't. But I've heard that it is just loud and this booming sound. And that is the picture that we get here with his voice. His voice is powerful. It is overwhelming. And when he speaks... Nothing else can be heard. It was the voice of power and authority. It demands our attention. It, it drowns out all the other voices and noises. Seventh characteristic, his sovereignty and his protection. Verse 16, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, And Jesus tells us in verse 20 that those seven stars are the messengers who represent the seven churches. And we don't exactly know who they are. They may be angels. Uh, Some think they're pastors. But Christ holds them in his right hand, implying that he is sovereign over the church and its leaders, that he has delegated authority to them to serve over his churches. And the psalmist often refer to the right hand of God uh, in the context of safety and protection. And so Jesus has these churches in his right hand. He is sovereign over them and will protect them and shelter them. 
And then the eighth characteristic, his powerful word, verse 16. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The sword from his mouth is symbolic of the living word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that his word is sharper than a two-edged sword and is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. His word pierces our heart. It convicts us of sin. It guides us. It leads us. It teaches us. But his word is also powerful as a weapon. Jesus used his word to fight and defeat Satan in the wilderness and uh, just the enemies that he faced when he walked on this earth, the Pharisees who tried to get him, he used his word as a weapon. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. His word is powerful, and we need to use it to fight those battles against the enemy. And then the last characteristic and attribute that stood out to me from this passage is his holiness. In verse 16, it says his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When Matthew records the transfiguration in Matthew 17, 2, he writes that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Jesus shines light as bright as the sun in its full strength because of his holiness. Uh, We talked about his head and his hair being white and that being symbolic of his holiness that you couldn't really look. You can't, just like you can't look directly at the sun in its full strength, you cannot look fully in the, the face of Jesus because of the brilliance of his holiness. We can't look in his face on this earth because we're sinners. That bright light is too intense to look at. You know, when I'm leaving some days uh, from work, it's late in the afternoon, and now lately this fall we haven't had a lot of sunny days at the end of the day, but there are days that when I pull up onto Poplar to go to 240, the sun is kind of low over in the southwest corner. And it's so bright that it blinds me. And I have to, I'm too short for the visor to do me any good. And so I have to hold my hand over my eyes while I'm driving so that it doesn't blind me. But that is a picture of what the glorified Jesus, his face is, it's bright. It is like the sun shining in its strength. So we have looked at the character of the one we worship. He is worthy to be worshipped. So now let's turn our attention to the second area, the response to the one we worship. And, And let's look at John's response. Verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And John had two responses to seeing Jesus in all his glory. The first one was, He was overwhelmed. He fell at his feet. A response of being completely overwhelmed by who Jesus is. A response of humility and awe, reverence. When you worship him, are you overwhelmed 
by who he is. There have been times that um, I've been so overwhelmed by how God did something or I saw an answer to prayer that, or I've opened something, a letter at home when I've gotten home and I've just been like, oh my goodness, Lord. And I've literally gone to my knees and even put my face to the floor in praise. We need more of those overwhelming moments that we just get lost in how great he is and what he can do. How will we respond? I asked you this earlier. How will we respond when we first see Jesus face to face? Will we be overwhelmed and fall at his feet? Or will we stand? Well, John's second response was that he was afraid. And we we know he was afraid because Jesus told him, don't be afraid. But he fell at his feet like a dead man because he knew that he had seen the face of God and he knew that no one could see the face of God and live. So he was afraid. And Jesus responded and said, don't be afraid. Now, today, for us on this earth, we are not in the presence of the glorified Jesus, we don't see his face right before us like John did in this vision. We are only getting a shadow of Jesus and what he looks like in all of his glory. We're just getting a shadow. So we shouldn't be afraid as we spend time with him. But we should reverence him and we should show that awe and respect that he's not our best buddy but he's somebody that deserves our respect and honor. And then Jesus comforted John in verses 17 to 18, and he gave another I am statement, a statement that should move us to worship him. It's a statement that tells us why we should worship him, and I'll just read it out of verses 17 and 18. He placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So I just want to break down this I am statement. Uh, When he said, I am the first and the last, he was saying, I am the eternal God. I am Yahweh, because... In Revelation 1.8, God had just revealed himself as the Alpha and the Omega. In Isaiah 44.6, Yahweh said, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. And so here Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last. I am Yahweh, declaring his deity. He said, I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And here he was saying, I am the only true God. I overcame death, and I live now and will never die again. I will live forever. No other God or so-called God has died and come back to life. They're in the grave. I am the only true God. And then he said, I have the keys of death and Hades. And he's saying here, I have authority over death. 
I have authority over what happens, when it happens. John had seen Jesus. Just think about it. John had walked for those years with Jesus on the earth. He had seen him on the earth as a man, as a teacher, as the Messiah, as a friend that he loved dearly. But now John is seeing Jesus in a completely different light. He is seeing Jesus as Yahweh, as God. And he fell at Jesus' feet, the feet of God himself. And I, I can only imagine that that changed his life forever. Well, I asked you earlier, how would you describe your worship of God today? And I hope that you'll consider what are some things that you can do to deepen your worship of God? What can you do to take it to a deeper level? Uh, I know Becky gave suggestions in, in the study of things that we can do, and they're great, and I love that. Those are some of the things for me. Uh, obviously, the Word of God leads me to worship, uh, but I also love His creation. Uh, some of my most precious times of worship has been on the beach watching the sunset, or <clears throat> I'm not, uh, I don't normally see the sunrise in Memphis uh, because it's blocked by houses and trees, if I'm outside at that time. But I've stood on a mountain in Nepal and watched the sun come above the Annapurna Mountains, and it's breathtaking. It makes you want to fall to your knees. The Grand Canyon had that effect on me. We can use creation to remind us of just his glory. I will say, even when the cherry blossoms come out and everything's white, it just makes me go, oh, God, you're amazing with how you do all this. And the other thing I really love is worship and praise music. Uh, my most precious praise times, worship times, really um, aren't at home because I have cats walking across uh, my Bible, but my most precious times are in the car when I'm by myself and driving to and from work, and I put on my playlist of Christian worship, and I will sing. I was telling the leaders this morning one of my favorite songs came on, and I'm sitting there driving, and I'm, I'm just praising. I was so moved. You know, and I love the fact that when Cole gave his... Um, state of the church and the state of the pastor address several months ago, and he talked about how he wants the freedom to be able to worship without, you know, being hindered because of what people might think. And I, I just think we all need that freedom. If we want to raise our hand and say, God, I worship you, that we can do that. That's my challenge to us, is that one word, worship, that that would become a vital part of of our lives, and that we would take it to a deeper level, not in any weird way, but that we would just focus more on worshiping him. And how can I worship him from the heart? Lord, we love you, and we want to praise you all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.